listening to Lost in Twin Peaks, a podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks, the mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film that we're discussing here, and 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. And at the time of this recording, who knows what after that. Spoilers are avoided until the very end of these episodes. If you're a new listener who has just discovered this podcast and wants to know more, check out Episode Zero, Show Format. Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me is the 1992 theatrical feature film, which serves, mostly, as a prequel to the then-canceled TV show. There is also a side project called The Missing Pieces, composed of deleted scenes re-edited and mixed 22 years later when covering Firewalk With Me for a favorite film series in 2016. This is how I described what it is. Laura Palmer, Cheryl Lee, lives in a nice neighborhood, in the bucolic Pacific Northwest town of Twin Peaks. She's a popular high school girl whose world seems idyllic, but a cloud falls over her expression once she steps away from her demure best friend Donna Hayward, Moira Kelly, and sneaks into a bathroom stall for a bump of cocaine. Later she tells one boyfriend, James Hurley, James Marshall, to quit holding on, I'm long gone, and then mocks her other boyfriend, Bobby Briggs, Dana Ashbrook, to his face. When she and her friends sit lazily on sofas to discuss boys, poetry, and hypotheticals about falling through space, Laura's response evinces an acute desperation that her friend doesn't really understand. Only when Laura returns home alone and discovers pages torn from her secret diary does the trouble really begin, at least for us in the audience. For Laura, the trouble has been going on for at least five years involving repeated rape and psychological torment by the mysterious Bob, Frank Silva, a creepy long-haired man who climbs through her window at night, although she grows to suspect, rightly, that there's more to this image than what she's seeing. Mystical as the flavor of this film is at times, it features eerie dreams, uncanny figures, and visits to otherworldly realms, its suffering is grounded in real human emotion. The first 40 minutes play like a massive red herring in which we follow an FBI investigation into a murder on the other side of the state. The victim's and killer's relationship to Laura is eventually revealed, but the characters and tone of this sequence lull us into thinking Firewalk With Me will be one type of film, an offbeat, archly comic murder mystery, when in fact, it is something else entirely, one of the most empathetic portraits of sexual violence ever placed on a screen.
But before we move forward with this podcast, I just want to say for all listeners, uh, both tiers of patrons and eventually the public as well, this coverage is being released on an anniversary. $5 a month patrons are hearing at least this opening during the 29th commemoration of the film's wide release in the U.S. on August 28, 1992. For $1 a month patrons, the podcast will be released in pieces across the 33rd anniversary of the week depicted in the movie, the last seven days in February, actually eight days as the film implies, uh, of Laura's life. And the public premiere of this podcast will unfold over the 30th anniversary of the May 1992 Cannes Film Festival, at which the film was infamously booed. A couple of housekeeping notes are in order. Uh, first of all, this is going to be two weeks worth of podcasts instead of the usual week that I use to focus on an episode, since it's a film, since there's so much more to talk about. And also, uh, the episodes themselves, the daily episodes, are going to be generally longer um, many will be over an hour long. Sometimes these, you know, have been as short as like 10 minutes or less, but uh, not so with these. There are a few that might be on the shorter side, but for the most part, they're going to be pretty long and in-depth, and uh, there'll be a lot of them. Overall, when you include the missing pieces, there's probably like 14 or 15 hours of material here, so there's a lot to uh, split up that way. My Missing Pieces podcast will be part of the mix for the public, whereas patrons received it separately several years before the rest of this coverage. If you haven't seen those yet and you don't want to hear about them before you know what's in them, I, I definitely recommend watching those. It's not quite a narrative, but it carries its own weight alongside the film. I like to keep those works distinct uh, from one another. I'm not really a big fan of the fan edit approach where you combine both of them, so uh, I'm going to talk about them separately, but also in close proximity to each other. So, for example, uh, when I talk about the motifs of coffee, pie, and donuts, I'm going to talk about them in Firewalk With Me, and then immediately talk about them in Missing Pieces. And I'm going to do that with several different sections. When it comes to stories, I'm going to separate them out even more. I'm going to have a whole episode just on the subplots, scene by scene, and uh, Laura's stories of the missing pieces. After that, I'm going to have episodes just on... Uh, firewalk with me. So keeping those two narratives separate. I'll discuss that process more when we get to it, but just wanted to say that at the outset. One more thing with this podcast, usually we start with the questions of what is Twin Peaks, who is Agent Cooper, and who is Laura Palmer. I'm going to save those in reverse order so that we can begin with the climactic sort of most important question of Laura Palmer uh, till the end of these weeks of podcasts. So I'm moving that to there. So you won't hear that here. There's a few other sections that have moved around a little. A lot of things are in reverse order. Again, I'll talk about that as we come to it, but just wanted to state that at the outset. I share updates of my recent podcast work in this spot, and uh, it's usually just an episode, maybe two. But in this case, for the public, I am releasing this in May 2022, and uh, the last Lost in Twin Peaks episode I put up was the season one finale way back in December 2021, so a little out of order and a big time gap. The links will be in my illustrated companion, not in the show notes, because there's just so many it would uh, probably cut off at a certain point and be confusing. So I mentioned last time, back in December, that I was uh, episodes were going up on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, where I was a guest to uh, talk about Ronnie Rocket, the abandoned David Lynch screenplay. Part two of that went up after that uh, discussion, so you can check that out. Uh, Twin Peaks Conversations on YouTube and the $5 a month Patreon tier, where I split up. There's like a public part of these conversations and then a part that is just for the top tier patrons. Those include uh, the author Mark Givens writing Murder at Teal's Pond, a book about a case from the turn of the 
20th, 19th to 20th century that influenced Twin Peaks. A young woman was murdered in a town in New York that uh, Mark Frost found out about later and shaped Laura Palmer around. And uh, Laura's ghost author, Courtney Stallings, came on in February. This book I've been wanting to discuss for a while. It's about the character of Laura Palmer, the impact she had particularly on uh, women who are fans of Twin Peaks, but also she interviews some uh, female collaborators in Twin Peaks, including Cheryl Lee herself and Grace Zabriskie and others. So that was a great conversation. And, uh, you know, you can check all these out on the YouTube feed to start with. And then um, if you want to become a patron, you can hear the, the rest of them. In that case, in the Patreon part, we discuss season three as well. Usually with all these conversations, we discuss their work and then branch out into other topics too. For the uh, March uh, version of this, I put out a conversation with the authors Julie Grossman and Will Scheibel, scholars who discuss Twin Peaks in connection with noir, among other things. Uh, they wrote a book in the TV Milestone series called Twin Peaks. And then finally in April, I published uh, a conversation with Twin Peaks fanatic creator Maya McBriar. That's her site, Twin Peaks fanatic. She's also written for other sites. Her work is included in a book about Twin Peaks. So there was a lot to discuss there and uh, enjoyed doing that. So Twin Peaks cinema feed, I had a theme of small town blues at the outset of 2022, covering the films King's Row, Our Town, and Peyton Place, films where there's like a a pleasant looking community with some dark themes underneath, just like Twin Peaks. And then I started a new theme in April, Traumatic Transformations. The first film covered there is Belladonna of Sadness, a Japanese animated film. Lost in the Movies podcast feed, I've been running with the theme of a uh, couple films by three different directors. So first I had Jane Campion covered The Piano and Holy Smoke in January and February. The second film with guests Em and Steve of the No Ship Network. Um, they recorded a podcast Spark Wooden 21 back in the day. Darren Aronofsky was the second director I covered the films Pie, Requiem for a Dream, and The Wrestler. And then uh, Christopher Nolan. I've just begun that little mini series with The Prestige. And I'll have one more film from him before wrapping that season. For the dollar a month patrons, I have bonus episodes where I discuss films and their connections to Twin Peaks. These usually become Twin Peaks cinema episodes when I release them for the public. And in this case, the past few months, well, first of all, I ended that approach in February. And up to that point, I published some uh, film discussions, which will be coming out very soon for the public. So I just want to note that in case people are like, oh, I'll join the Patreon just for that and then be kind of pissed because it, it just came out in public. So fair warning. But uh, in December, I covered Twin Peaks and Mysterious Skin. That's going to go public in a month. And uh, in addition to that, uh, old and new, well, discussions of the old and new Dune. I read an archive piece that I wrote about the David Lynch version of that and then uh, recorded a capsule just on the Denis Villeneuve one that came out. Twin Peaks Reflections covered the characters of Pinkle, Mayor, Lana, the locations of Big Ed's Gas Farm and House, and the storyline of Who's Donna's Father, which I connected to Eraserhead. In January, I covered the film On Dangerous Ground, connected that to Twin Peaks. That's going to go public in a couple months when I do a Nicholas Ray focus on the Twin Peaks Cinema podcast. The Twin Peaks reflections were Pete, Doc, the Spirits, the locations of Glastonbury Grove, and the Mystery, and uh, the Bank. And then I connected the Mystery Box storyline to Mulholland Drive. So... You can hear all that there. And then uh, in February, for the last Twin Peaks Cinema patron exclusive, I covered the film The Sweet Hereafter. That's going to go public in a week and a half. So definitely don't jump over there solely for the sake of hearing that. But uh, there is some extra material on that podcast that won't be 
uh, in the public feed. That's uh, book and podcast recommendations related to the sweet hereafter. And then Twin Peaks reflections on the characters of Cliff, Jeffries, Carl, the locations of Moe's Motor and the Oregon FBI office, and then a Firewalk Me subplot, which I won't mention what it is because I connect it to a season three episode. Uh, those will be listed in the uh, illustrated companion. So uh, I'll, I'll kind of hint at it there, but I don't want to do so here for the sake of spoilers. And uh, also have a uh, archive reading of the of my review of the film Affliction, which was another adaptation of a Russell Banks book, just like The Sweet Hereafter. In March, I published an episode, Film and TV Capsules and Political Reflections, with a vast array of topics, including Don't Look Up, War in Ukraine, State of the Left, many podcast recommendations, The Hunt, Olympic documentaries, Generational Youth Zeitgeist with Mazzy Starr in the Super Bowl, The Civil War, Who Do We Think We Are, documentary on the Reconstruction Legacy, The Three Stooges, Disney and Disturbing Fairy Tales, Surrealist Shorts, Alone in the Wilderness, Rick Steves' The Holy Land, Hill Street Blues' Final Season, Carter and Biden, The Conservative Mood, a political pause, the Wolf of Wall Street archive reading, and more. And then in April, I published uh, listener feedback, Twin Peaks subjects including Sleeping Beauty Connections, Was the Return a Passion Project, Firewalk with Me's Subversion of Intent, Ironic versus Sincere Responses, Cooper's Identity in Flux, and more, plus an archive reading of an essay on Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. So there it is. That's all of the podcast material that I've recorded since uh, released since December. Uh, there will be more episodes of Twin Peaks Conversations and Twin Peaks Cinema, one each, coming out during the two weeks of these Firewalking podcasts, so stay tuned for that, and we'll discuss them in the next update. Let's move on with Firewalk with me for now. So let's discuss the feel of the film. For a film that is so frequently about being trapped, Firewalk with me's overwhelming sensory experience is one of freedom. This can be invigorating, but also terrifying. There are things that Laura can't access, or that she has trouble accessing, or can only access in limited capacity. But that's what's tragic about the film, not horrific. The horror of Laura Palmer isn't so much in what she can't access, it's in what she can access, or maybe rather, what can access her. Supernatural visions in the midst of a sunny day, decadent debaucheries with dangerous men on a quiet Sunday night, and a rapist who, in truth, breaks into her bedroom and her bed, not through the open window, but the closed door. Freedom, however, is also Laura's way out of this nightmare. The freedom of the mystical ring moving across time and space. The freedom of an angel to emerge from the ether and silence the cacophony. The freedom of the deep, open, bellowing red room in her dreams. And the freedom of empathy to connect her to other people in a form that may not only save them, but also her. Far from suggesting a conservative antidote to the rootless terror of an open door, as some of Lynch's critics have alleged, Firewalk With Me's answer to the breakdown of a social order is not less freedom, but more. However, it's a freedom that rhymes with a deeper, more satisfying order. This is not a return to human structures, but the discovering of something much more fundamental. And you must break away from the superficial bonds to find it. This loose, wandering, liberatory sensation is also embodied in the film's very style. In its second part, the film will immerse us in woozy dissolves that weave a web from disparate elements, sustaining meditative shots of Laura, supple lighting effects which draw out the spirit of a physical environment, and the graceful slithering of a steady cam that places us directly inside our protagonist's headspace while contributing to the general sense of exploration. The first part of the film is more restrained, 
Note how the clock in the morgue moves slowly, methodically, in an orderly fashion, whereas the clock in Laura's classroom whirls back and forth, bleary and blurred as the camera whooshes around it. However, even in that first part, there's a sense of restlessness and openness that's pervasive. The more static shots are not entirely locked down. The edges of the frame wobble as if the agents are trying to keep their feet on the ground, but countervailing forces are on hand. For 20 or so minutes, the film holds this uneasy truce between an attempt at calm and energies brewing just off screen, captured most acutely by the traveling point of view shot up the trailer steps, which eventually yields the wounded lady who disturbs Carl Rod. Then Jeffries and the convenience store meeting blow through any sense of solidity. When the blue static swaddled jumping man supplants the screaming Jeffries, the film becomes a cascade of superimpositions, extreme close ups, and jarring cuts as bewildering an effect as the cryptic dialogue and haunting figures. Nothing will be the same again after this intervention, as if a flood has washed away a series of fragile, rickety structures which were already swaying in the breeze. The impressionistic, dreamy camera and cutting style of the film continues to flow like a river throughout the last day's sequence, interrupted only by even more dramatic flourishes, most notably the morning after her discovery of who Bob is, with its lurching zooms and dollies, bursts of static, askew angles, and slow motion, and the night Laura is killed, with its cutaways to laughing spirits, almost abstracted close-ups of gore, and rapid movements of weapons and figures, cut into handfuls of seconds or even frames that stab in rhythm with the killer's knife. All of this, from the suggestive shakiness of Deer Meadow to the sinuousness of Laura and Twin Peaks, to the frenetic hallucinations of Jeffrey's Laura's Last Day and the murder itself, exists in contrast to the much more locked-down aesthetic of the TV show, with its limited deployment of a moving camera, sense of restraint and cutting, and jewel-like precision of composition. Angelo Badalamenti's score is different, too. In the series, the music is more florid and melodramatic, more eager to dip into cheeky pastiche, whereas Firewalk with Me embraces a cool jazz vibe, beyond irony, saturated in pure, visceral mood. We can feel the notes in our nerves. The opening theme captures this difference right away. In The Passion of David Lynch, Martha Nockhamson writes that this piece, the Firewalk with Me music that accompanies the opening credits, is, quote, a modal jazz composition in the style that Miles Davis pioneered in the 1960s, embodying that kind of limitless form and sound. It operates at the minimal level of musical signification, neither happy nor sad, neither major nor minor, not in any key, highly chromatic, bearing neither sharps nor flats. Here is a space without defined logical shapes, but it has specific density, texture, and a form in which we can hear color and see sound. This is a representation of an important, fluid space of reality. Yet, with admittedly less compositional knowledge than Nockhamson provides, courtesy of a discussion she attributes to her colleague, Joshua Barrett, there does seem to be a direction that I can feel in this theme, descending rather than ascending, allowing a force of gravity to pull us down in a way that, oddly enough, feels more rather than less dreamy and liberatory perhaps because we're no longer running away, but surrendering to something and seeing where it leads. That paradox pervades Lynch, as Nockhamson has also written about quite wisely. That odd mixture of freedom and order I spoke of earlier comes with the recognition that as humans, we can access much more than seems available to us. But to do so, we must accept our own limitations as actors and embrace our own possibilities as conduits. Bob and Leland pervert this idea 
by forcing Lara's submission to their own willful transgressions. And in doing so, they almost succeed in making this transcendence anathema to Laura. But something, both within and without, whispers to her, and to us, the truth. Lynch's dub Firewalk With Me, his most experimental film, until he'd later transfer that title in a cheeky but not just chung-in-cheek fashion to the straight story. One of the reasons for that may be that it has its foot in both worlds, continuing a story in a world that originated with the form of the weekly mystery soap opera, but yanking it into the once more focused and expansive format of a feature film. Firewalk With Me would serve as a bridge into later Lynch works, which embrace and expand upon this sense of disorientation, established by practical circumstances here, but later transformed into a preferred artistic mode. Initially, however, Firewalk With Me brought Lynch's career to a dead halt. After a busy couple years in the late 80s and early 90s, he wouldn't direct again for a half decade, finally returning with Lost Highway, based on an idea he conceived on the last day of shooting Firewalk With Me. The film which is an iconic cult classic with a hit soundtrack, talking about Lost Highway, was still a dud at the box office, as well as with many critics, although around this time, more serious scholars were beginning to take Lynch up again as a true genius, after the mass media had basically dismissed him as a faddish flash in the pan. Lynch, if I'm not mistaken, actually requested that advertisers run with a Siskel and Ebert review of Lost Highway by using the tagline, Two thumbs down, two more great reasons to see Lost Highway. The straight story, however it was intended, was actually received as an act of humility and restoration. This is where a lot of critics forgave him. It won goodwill from the media, even as it failed to turn a profit for Disney, of all studios, who picked it up for distribution. Mulholland Drive, a failed TV pilot, was transformed into the most acclaimed film of the 21st century, forever cementing Lynch's status as one of the all-time great auteurs, while his website and other media appearances would endear him to a new generation, as millennials grew up thinking of him as the lovably wacky uncle whose heart was true, whereas fellow boomers tended to regard Lynch as a cheeky jester who went too far in his edgy hipster provocations. For years, Lynch stuck with his quote in a 2000 interview, Twin Peaks is dead as a doornail, only the show's DVD release in 2007 would begin to change his mind, and even then, Firewalk With Me tended to remain a sordid footnote to its legacy. That transformed, too, around 2014, when the film was finally included alongside the series on a Blu-ray, an hour and a half of deleted scenes drawing new attention to the film itself, and Lynch and Frost announced that they would be renewing Twin Peaks on Showtime. As promised, the new season was heavily rooted in Fire Walk With Me, and in 2017, the same year that The Return aired, the prestigious Criterion Collection released Fire Walk With Me in a standalone edition. Its moment had finally come, but its impact had already been visible for years in Lynch's work, given the way it transformed him as a filmmaker. Lynch co-wrote this screenplay as he did with almost all of his films, the sole exception being The Straight Story, which was authored by Mary Sweeney and John Roach. Sweeney's creative and personal partnership with Lynch, by the way, would begin around Firewalk With Me, 
It was the first of many films that she would edit, having only cut the killer's reveal of Twin Peaks beforehand, and she was nine months pregnant with their son Riley when they showed up hand-in-hand at the Cannes Film Festival. Frost, uh, rather, Lynch's writing partner on this was not Mark Frost, who was off directing his film debut, Storyville. He wasn't interested in driving the narrative backwards for a prequel, and anyway, he and Lynch had kind of drifted out of each other's orbit. As the show went on, their different visions became more apparent, as we've discussed in other sections, talking about these two in relation to the show. Although significantly, the first attempt to visualize Laura's last days was actually written into Mark Frost's original script for the season two premiere back in 1990. An extended flashback would have illustrated Albert Rosenfield's narration of the events leading up to her death, but this never made it to screen and was almost certainly never shot. Nor was Lynch's collaborator Harley Payton, the most prolific writer on the series, whose snarky sensibility clashed with Lynch's and couldn't be further from the spirit of Fire Walk With Me in many ways, although the characters of Harold and maybe the Tremonts, in their less supernatural incarnation, did originate with uh, Harley Payton. To take Twin Peaks to the big screen, Lynch joined forces with Robert Engels, the fourth regular writer on the series, whom he palled around with quite a bit as the second season wore on and whose dry, whimsical sense of humor matched Lynch's own. Engel's touch may be most evident in the absurdist comedy of the Deer Meadow sequences, although his episodes for the series often give off a flair for the supernatural and a fondness for the pathos of Lara's friends. Both qualities can be found pretty amply in Fire Walk With Me. And from Fire Walk With Me on, Engels would write some more TV episodes, author an aggressively campy TV movie called Matthew Blackheart Monster Smasher. I've traced its uh, Twin Peaks connections in another podcast. And he's also gone on to teach writing to college students. He's given many interviews about Twin Peaks, offering some surprising insights into its process, although his memory can be a bit foggy at times. So when did the first whispers of a Twin Peaks movie begin? Back at the height of the season one frenzy, Mark Frost noted that if the network declined to pick them up again, perhaps they'd create a two-hour TV movie to wrap things up. However, he also claimed that they'd shot two endings for the season finale, one if they got renewed and one if they didn't, which almost certainly wasn't true, so who knows what plans were really in the works. At any rate, back then the public perception of Twin Peaks was as a thrilling pop culture event and gripping weekly murder mystery. A prequel revisiting the psychological trauma of an incest victim certainly wasn't on anyone's radar as a possible spinoff. A year later, for most of the viewers and media commentators who had dropped away early in season two, Peaks was still regarded as pop iconography and a fun whodunit, albeit one that overstayed its welcome. And that's if it was regarded at all. The darkness of the killer's reveal, and even the murder flashback in season two premiere, when audience numbers started to drop, arguably should have prepared folks for what David Lynch had in mind when revisiting the show's premise. However, Lynch himself continued to foster a dual projection of Twin Peaks as a cheeky, playful piece of entertainment, even as he dove into it as a challenging, confrontational work of art. And in the confusion, many latched onto the former and used this characterization as a cudgel to attack the latter. This ambivalence in Lynch's presentation was reflected in other early spin-off ideas. Kimmy Robertson, who plays Lucy, says that Lynch and Frost approached her at the Emmys or some other big event and informed her, big things are in store for you, implying perhaps a separate sitcom just for the wacky receptionist. By midway through season two, as she essentially played in her own version of a sitcom within the existing show itself, that may have seemed less promising. 
Likewise, there were talks between Lynch Frost and their mutual agent Tony Krantz about a possible big-screen Peaks project in which Audrey goes to Hollywood, which would then branch off into its own ongoing show about the nascent starlet. Few of these ideas ever progressed far beyond wouldn't it be cool if, given how much everybody already had on their plates, even third-season chatter was vague and nebulous. There were a lot of pipe dreams born and quickly evaporated in the Twin Peaks buzz. However, the Audrey concept did have an intriguing title, which would eventually lead to something else. It was to be called Mulholland Drive. Not until the fate of Twin Peaks as a weekly network show seemed sealed did the idea of a feature film really begin to gain traction. Somewhere in the chaotic winter and spring of 1991, as the series was yanked, rescheduled, yanked again, and finally canceled, the idea of a prequel coalesced. This was an odd turn. With the Cooper-Bob cliffhanger already scripted, the whole idea of making a movie would naturally have flowed into fans want to know what happens next and ABC won't let them. But that kind of forward narrative momentum wasn't at all what was aching inside Lynch, as his show fell into decline and ridicule. At least, that mostly wasn't what concerned him. He certainly did have some ideas for expanding the mythology, and he wanted to make at least some references to where the series left off. But for Lynch, the unfinished business of Twin Peaks had little to do with writer's room plot twists nipped in the bud by poor ratings. The problems began much earlier, as far back as the decision to reveal Laura's killer in season two, or perhaps even before that, as he returned from shooting Wild at Heart to see how fast-paced and heady even the acclaimed first season had become under Mark Frost's guidance. And Mark Frost, it quickly became clear, was going to have nothing to do with this new Twin Peaks movie, as we've already discussed. By April, as fans on the Usenet board nervously read the writing on the wall, word of a film was already in the air. And even at this early date, before the finale had even aired, the film was known to be a prequel. Lynch did not want to carry on with Twin Peaks. He wanted to return to its roots, to find out what had been lost somewhere along the path, but also, perhaps more than he realized, what had been discovered in the process of wrenching Twin Peaks from what it was originally supposed to be. One of the many paradoxes of Fire Walk With Me is how reliant it is on precisely what Lynch didn't want to happen, giving audiences an answer to what was supposed to be a lingering, poignant question, perpetually charging the air with a sense of cosmic mystery that you could live with your entire life. That incarnation of Twin Peaks was a beautiful dream, but an impossible one, especially for someone who had little interest in running a show day to day, and was partnered with someone much more schooled in TV conventions, even if he too liked to subvert them. I've noted before that both Lynch and Frost were thrilled by Twin Peaks' ability to explode the limits of both feature film and episodic television by telling an ongoing story. But right away, their differing conceptions of what ongoing meant was apparent. For Frost, trained by the overlapping arcs of Hill Street Blues, within scenes, within episodes, between several episodes, and even over whole seasons, the point was to cycle through a series of evolving beginnings, middles, and ends, resolving one matter, but always able to freely embrace a new concept and direction, an eternal chain of stories, rather than one that had a fixed endpoint or narrow parameters. Frost was, in a word, expansive. Lynch, on the other hand, seemed less interested in linking each end to a new beginning, and more interested in never ending at all, in stretching out that middle on and on and on and on into the horizon until you could live inside of it in a never-ending bliss. But a sense of ending was still required 
to give that bliss just the slightest tension, a bit of nervous anticipation that the dream could collapse at any time, even if it never did. The train must move all right, but it must move slowly. And, God willing, may it never reach its destination. By resolving the mystery, Twin Peaks preemptively brought an ending to bear, and worse, it crushed that ostensibly endless middle like an accordion. Lynch had nothing to live in anymore. So he drifted from deep involvement with the show. He had never been heavily involved in the writing, mostly giving it his touch by coming on set to direct and throw certain ideas out, or bringing new ones in. It had become Frost's baby, even though Frost, too, was moving on to other things and leaving it to Peyton, whom Lynch did not get along with, and Engels, who provided a great partner, probably in part because of the clear hierarchy between them, which did not exist with Frost. As Lynch struggled with whether there was anything redeemable for him in this project, he must have kept returning to two points. First, that extraordinary moment of birth when he traveled up north to begin building the world of Twin Peaks, imbibing the atmosphere of the Pacific Northwest in a way that the canned Disneyland quality of the Van Nuys soundstage would not allow. And second, the moment when it all ended for him, when he returned to the series for what seemed like the last time to film Maddie's brutal murder, a moment that excavates all the distant, moody pain of the pilot and shoves it in our faces in a way that even Lynch's edgy movies never quite had before. And so these two ideas, the first time Twin Peaks really meant anything to Lynch and the last time it did, may have coiled around one another in his mind. I suspect that this seed of the film was already formed by the time Lynch burst back into this world to shoot the improvisational finale, which in some ways points more toward the 25 years hence season 3 than it does the 6 months hence Firewalk With Me. As fascinating as Cooper's last cackling turn may have been, Lynch's imagination had already been captured by something else, and so the Laura Palmer film was born. The screenplay was written throughout that spring and early summer of 91. Par for the course, this new project kept hitting as many speed bumps and sharp turns as the troubled second season had. Kyle McLaughlin was burnt out and bitter over a sense of abandonment, quitting the project, then coming back for fewer scenes, which were handed over to the new creation of Chet Desmond. Many other actors, who were slated to appear, also declined. Sherilyn Fenn, Richard Boehmer, and most troublingly, Lara Flynn Boyle, whose character was so important to the concept that she had to become a rare example of recasting in the Peaks world. One actor, of course, was secured in the beginning and never budged. Shirley is Laura Palmer, who'd appeared in a brief credit at the end of the pilot, even as her face filled the screen as a photo prop, and was now going to become a bona fide film lead, carrying the entire movie on her relatively inexperienced shoulders. This, more than anything, would come to define the production. Having already noted the screenplay shakeups and alluded to the editing room in the fact that an hour and a half of material was cut from this film to get it down to a reasonable runtime for the Cannes Film Festival, I think it's worth also observing what happened on set. So for the second part of this creative context, I'm going to read in full Charlotte Fraser's shooting diary. She's a French journalist sent by somebody, perhaps the similarly French financiers, to record the process in a professional, bemused tone but she slowly becomes more and more immersed, particularly by an unexpected element. This also provides a sense of when the film was made, in the autumn of 91, uh, somewhat shockingly, especially given the bounty of bonus material that would have to wait a quarter century for release, it was all shot inside of two months. Here's the diary. Tuesday, September 3rd, 1991. D-Day minus one. 
arrival of Special Agent Dale Cooper, alias Kyle McLaughlin. David Lynch, who wants this character to be as clean and respectable as possible, runs his fingers on the back of the actor's head to check the length of his hair and promises as a hello. Not short enough yet. Thursday, September 5th, second day. Warm and relaxed atmosphere. David is calm and kindly, as heedful of the actor's performances as of the quality of sound. He follows the shooting, sitting in front of a small video monitor. He often uses two cameras and prints a lot of takes that give him a wide range of possibilities for editing. Monday, September 9th, fifth day. Hospital scene. For the lighting of the room, Ron Garcia, the director of photography, only uses four 5KWA projectors. He often diffracts the light, multiplies the flags, and can wisely take his time for important sequences and be faster for minor scenes. Friday, September 13th, ninth day. The clash between Cliff Howard the deputy and Desmond the agent is shot with three cameras, one being mounted on a steady cam. You can easily see that Chris Isaac, Desmond, has practiced boxing. His coordination is perfect. The hardest part is to hold back your blows, he confesses to me, after having calmly but viciously twisted his antagonist's nose. Monday, September 16th, 11th day. On the Red Diamond Motel parking lot, David walks towards me, looking cheerful, rested, and ready to go. For the first time, he kisses me. That's nice. It makes me feel a little bit as part of the family. He is in a great mood and full of humor, joking with everybody on the set. Thursday, September 19th, 14th day. Location, the Double R Diner. Before the shooting of the pilot of the series Twin Peaks, business was bad and the owner baked her own pies. Since, she has hired three persons to handle the rush of tourists. Twin Peaks was a breath of oxygen for this underprivileged area, where the wood industry no longer provides sufficient work and income. A huge pile of sheets of paper sits on the counter. It's a petition to obtain prolongation of the series. Across the street, a souvenir shop sells mostly Twin Peaks subproducts, T-shirts, books, postcards, badges, etc. We shoot the scene where a mysterious old lady, with her masked grandson, offers an engraving to Laura Palmer. The woman has a surprising silhouette. Very tiny, she wears a dark suit and has a little hat emphasizing her passé look. The little boy is just as bizarre, dressed like a first communicant of the 50s. The shooting goes on till the end of the afternoon, because David likes his time with the child and regularly lets him have a break. Apparently, Americans are stricter than we are about child actors working hard. Saturday, September 21st, 16th day. Shooting in Laura and her friend Donna's high school in a clean and pretty little town about 30 miles from Seattle. First shot, students coming out of school. To help actors and extras find the right rhythm, David puts on some music, which makes their movement more natural, lissom, and fluid. Wednesday, September 25th, 19th day. Location, Laura's house. This house, where the pilot was shot, is smallish, very clean, with white walls and whiter pinkish-beige curtains, little pink garlands painted over the windows, and an unbelievable amount of knickknacks. The floors are protected with large pieces of cardboard. The lady of the house retired graciously to her kitchen with the prop men. With David's agreement, Mary Sweeney, the editor, shows us some rough cuts, school out, a dialogue between Laura and the log lady, and a scene with Bobby and Laura. These scenes are superb, very intense, and I discover an unexpected Cheryl Lee. Enhanced, under remarkable lighting and direction, this actress with a clean-cut look, who could have seemed a bit too demure for the part, turns out to be a genuine Lynch heroine. Monday, September 30th, 23rd day. 
Well, we shoot a short scene with Laura and Bobby. A small team shoots landscapes with cars and a shot of Teresa Banks' body drifting along the river. The camera had to be seen on the opposite bank of the river, so the technicians climbed into a raft led by three men in rubber suits. Tuesday, October 1st, 24th day. Frank Silva, who plays the part of Bob, joins in. He is very popular with the crew, who gives him a warm welcome. An occasional actor, he had originally been hired as a set dresser on the pilot of Twin Peaks. While watching Frank dress Laura Palmer's bedroom, the dark side, the dark idea of Bob, appeared in David's mind. Friday, October 4th, 27th day. Tough night. We are supposed to shoot the scene where Laura falls off James's motorcycle and runs, then several shoots near Jock's cabin, a few miles away. The first scene takes place at the crossing of two narrow, shoulderless roads, which makes driving the vehicles and setting up our equipment difficult. A broken-down railroad bridge adds a suitably ominous gloom to the place. A stunt woman does four takes. It's not easy and all the more courageous since she is only wearing black stockings and a miniskirt so short we can see her garters. Tuesday, October 8th, 28th day. Back to the studio and pre-lighting of Partyland, a night spot where Laura lures the naive Donna into her dark world. According to David's indications, the set is strikingly ugly. It's a large place with walls made of face wine red logos. Worn and sleazy carpeting of the same shade covers the floor. In a raised area, some tables and wooden benches. The floor is littered with cigarette butts and scraps of paper. On the walls hang garlands of purplish light bulbs. Wednesday, October 9th, 29th day. Shooting at Partyland. About 40 extras, mostly youths, and a small band of musicians. The wardrobe people have done a fine job. Lots of girls in more or less torn jeans and both strapless brassiers. Others wear thigh-high boots or mesh stockings like those of a cheap Pagal bar girl. Laura's transformation is striking. From a well-behaved schoolgirl, she has turned into a real siren in black miniskirt, black stockings, and thigh-high boots. Donna seems completely lost in her little pleated skirts and shocks. Once more, I am surprised by the sparsity of the lighting. Three fixtures fitted with about 15, no more than 25-watt bulbs, two gelatinized projectors, six neon tubes, and one stroboscopic spotlight. That's all. Thursday, October 10th, 30th day. Follow up on Partyland, shooting under a record and overpowering temperature of 42 degrees Celsius, making the headlines of all the papers. A heavy smoke fills the set up to its low ceiling. Some technicians wear a mask, and David, unruffled, his usual favorite woolen jacket with a hole in the elbow. He dismisses all the people not absolutely indispensable on the set, keeping only the camera team, the assistant, the gaffer, and the script supervisor, who says everything goes wonderfully well. Friday, October 11th, 31st day, The Red Room. One of the main characters haunting that eerie set is a little person, referred to as the man from another place. Michael Anderson does not quite reach the size of an average man. He is a cheerful, pleasant, and smiling person. A genuine grace exudes from his whole being, especially when he dances. In that scene, the camera rolls backwards. And this is also the way the little person says his lines and moves about. In the film, of course, picture and sound will roll forward, but a strange effect of misadjustment results. The script supervisor shows a line to Michael, who repeats them backwards after an infinitesimal lapse. We are fascinated by his virtuosity, which has already made him famous. Monday, October 14th, 32nd day. Set. The Roadhouse Nightclub. A bar, tables, chairs, and a small stage where a singer performs in a pale gray tulle dress with ruffles. 
Julie Cruz, the singer, who has made a name for herself, already appeared in the pilot. In this scene, she sings a very pretty, yearning, and ingenious song, a battlementy tune on David Lynch's lyrics, which makes Laura break into tears. Thursday, October 17th, 35th day. Location, Donna Hayward's house. Cheryl seems a little tired, but she perks up as soon as she is on. We are shooting the sequence where Donna tries to remember the nightmare of her night at Partyland, the two friends crying in each other's arms. The scene is really moving, and David, very enthusiastic, warmly congratulates the two actresses. When I also congratulate Cheryl, she answers, It's so easy and so wonderful to play with David. I reply, telling her that even a crack fiddler needs a good violin to make beautiful music. Monday, October 21st, 37th day. Jacques' cabin, interior. It's a tiny set, less than 24 square yards, but nevertheless, we shoot with two cameras. The set is off-limits for everybody, not only because of exiguity, but because of the nature of the scene. Now and then we hear screaming coming from within the cabin. At lunch break, the actors leave the set, their mouths smeared with lipstick. Tuesday, October 22nd, 38th day. We are again with Mrs. Tremont and her grandson, still wearing his first communicant suit. This time the set is a big, oblong bedroom. Its three windows are partly blocked with blackened, burnt, and parched cardboards and newspapers, making a very strange and beautiful collage. The room is scantily furnished, a collapsed couch, a formica table, a few chairs, and three big radios in the style of the 30s. The other inhabitants are the man from another place, a second smaller gentleman in white makeup, an electrician, two woodsmen, and Bob. Once more, we shoot with two cameras rolling backwards, under the stroboscopic light set at 60 pulsations per second. Michael acts as the dialogue coach. The scene, terribly dark, also reveals itself very difficult to manage. Ken Shearer, chief operating officer of Lynch Frost Productions, confesses to me that he can't figure it out, but claims, I know it's going to be a great moment. This is the common feeling. After the long shots, David shoots extreme close-ups of the mouths of the actors speaking and screaming. For this purpose, he uses a special lens, one generally used only in the field of medicine. Thursday, October 31st, 45th day. Set, interior of railroad car, Laura Palmer's death. This is a perfect duplicate of Seattle's set. The painting and patina work is remarkable. The car really gives the impression of having rotten away in an old depot for the past 50 years. Laura and Renette are striking, with bloody mouths and black circles around their eyes. The scene is physically very difficult. Laura lies at a slant on her belly, over a mirror handled by Leland, in which his and Bob's faces reflect themselves one after the other. Seeing her image in the mirror, then the two men's faces, lit with a white, intermitting light very harsh in the eyes, Laura is tormented through several takes. Cheryl unleashes a tremendous energy in this scene. What a transformation from the nice girl player of the beginning to the great actress she has become. Between two shots, David announces that Cheryl would like to say a word to the crew. He hands her the megaphone, and Cheryl thanks all the technicians with great emotion and kindness. I love you all. You have helped me make this movie. I'll never forget you. Then she offers to each of them a lighter on which is engraved Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me. From this point on, and this is me talking now, that's the end of the diary, Lynch moved on to post-production, savoring the sound design and closely supervising the musical score, while his new sweetheart Sweeney, who, as I noted, would become quite pregnant during this period with their son Riley, handled the initial phases of editing herself. 
I discuss some of the decisions made during editing more heavily in the standalone Missing Pieces episode, but I'll just note here that the many non-Laura uh, Palmer vignettes simply don't belong tonally or narratively in a work that's so singularly focused on Laura's inner turmoil. It's arguable whether or not even the Deer Meadow sequence, and especially the Philadelphia FBI sequences, might also better suit an offshoot, like a companion short film, sort of like Wes Anderson crafted with the Hotel Chevalier that stood side by side with the Darjeeling Limited without disrupting its overall order. But that's not how Lynch did it. He did keep the Deer Meadow and the FBI sequences and the Laura stuff all in the same movie, and that's how we'll deal with it. The process of making Firewalk With Me was so absorbing, demanding, and intoxicating that many involved expected a rapturous reception, much as Lynch received two years earlier, winning the Palme d'Or for Wild at Heart at Cannes. But the zeitgeist had something else planned. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy this work, and you can also support it on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode will uh, change things up a bit in terms of the order that we usually go in. I'm going to place the current events episode tomorrow. That's where I talk about what was going on in the world, in TV, in film, in the news, um, focusing on a Time magazine cover that week to give us a sort of pinpoint of focus uh, at the time that Firewalking Me came out in the summer of 1992. So a lot to discuss there, some of which is surprisingly relevant. And uh, we'll see you then tomorrow. Tomorrow.